Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Show me the magic Can I take you out to the picture? Well, I hope you'll come and see me in the movies What a scene Of your Hollywood song Hello, and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I'm Matt Looker. I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans, and each week we discuss a different movie about, starring, or inspired by the Beatles. This week, that film is the 2021 documentary The Beatles and India, an exploration of the Beatles' relationship with the music and spiritual philosophy of India, and how, in turn, the country inspired the group to explore new creative territory and ultimately bridge the gap between two vastly different world cultures. Uh, And I guess I wanted to talk about... I thought the documentary was really effective, and I think it's a really good example of... I mean, we've covered a lot of documentaries in this podcast already... I think this is a, uh, an example of a documentary that is done very well and is very effective. I, I think part of the reason for that is, uh, and it was something that I was quite surprised by, which is that the the film itself explores India's relationship with the Beatles as much as it explores the Beatles' relationship with India, which is, I think, what you'd assume going into it. This is a film about the Beatles and their time in India, but it's really not. Mm. It's... It, it 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 sets up um, a, a really I think interesting amount of context for India's relationship with the Beatles, uh, how the Beatles resonated with Indian audiences before their their visit to uh, Rishikesh, mm-hmm. and and obviously then uh, I think it, it it does a good job of exploring why the Beatles became so interested in the culture while they were there. And how that must have, or how that obviously ultimately did, influence them going forward, even after they left. 
Um, but I was I, say I was I was quite surprised that I think sometimes these documentaries they try to very specifically explore what the Beatles were up to at that particular time, but this felt like it was much more about the wider context and the relationship between two. Basically, this was a film that was about the Beatles and India, mm. so which is what it's called. Clever title, I know, right? Yeah. yeah. Did you think that? Did you find that? I was surprised by it at all because I, I, you know, yeah. it's not normally how these documentaries are. They're normally very much focused on the group itself. But actually, I was pleasantly surprised that it was more interested in the, the context. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I, I was surprised by that approach as well. Um, it's very easy to go into Beatles documentaries thinking, okay, well, hopefully, I might see a little bit of new footage or I might hear an anecdote that I haven't heard before. But actually, this is quite a part from most Beatles documentaries and that it's not particularly concerned with anecdotes. You know, there, there are a few in there, but it, but there's very little of, um, oh, like I was there at the time and here's an interesting thing of like when we went to a restaurant and this and George said this funny thing, or, you know, yeah. or, or whatever, you know. Uh, there are uh, like Indian people who they met in their sort of various uh, visits there who have a couple of stories to tell. But actually it, it is talking much more broadly about uh, India's relationship with the Beatles, as you say. There's lots of um, musicians in there who are much younger, some who are, uh, who are, who are older, you know, who, who talk about, talk about the, the Beatles' influence on them. Now, the, every low-rent Beatles documentary has sort of old rockers in it saying, oh, yeah, they're a brilliant band. They influenced us a lot. Mm. thanks 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 for thanks for taking part you know like and and uh, which is you know fine but you don't learn anything from it but actually uh the fact of we're as, as i'm sure most westerners are to one degree or another guilty of um framing the way we think about things culturally entirely in western terms mm-hmm. and i suppose you and i probably think mainly about how the beatles influenced the west the uk they went over and conquered america and then toured you know the touring they did uh you know sort of mainly around Europe and then sort of went off to Australia and places like that. But broadly speaking, just sort of uh, European or sort of English speaking countries, that kind of thing. Uh, And I suppose maybe India is a thing that sort of crops up in that narrative. Like Mm. 1968, they went to Rishikesh, they wrote loads of the White Album and they came back. India done. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, But the nice thing about this is the way it makes clear that the influence they had on that country was being felt like before they visited, you know, yeah, and um, and carried on the whole time. It's just really nice to hear that other perspective. The, the film starts with a really nice montage, and and this is the thing that brought it home to me straight away. The film does a really good job of setting up that context because we see cheesy shots of like married couple listening to the wireless, <laughs> um, but also then immediately cutting to what is clearly like an Indian Beatles tribute band yeah, playing yeah. And, the, and the crowd going uh, wild for it, yeah. you know. Um, but you just don't, wouldn't have thought that was the case. So yeah. I guess, you know, like you say, we're guilty of assuming that their influence extended only to the Western Western parts of the world. But uh, as it was, um, and as this documentary tells us, musicians at the time, particularly musician, uh, musicians at the time, were... Uh, discovering that music for the first time and it was having a massive, massive influence on them. Yeah. And actually what's also really nice is that later on, once uh, once the documentary has dealt with the narrative of Rishikesh, then there are other musicians um, who talk to camera and say that the songs that they wrote on the White Album, knowing that they were written in India, means so much more to them personally. Yeah. 
and this idea of and there's 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 a um it's a songwriting duo who uh who have a very short amount of screen time right towards the end um who are probably the same age as us probably a bit younger I think they're quite a lot younger. To be well, they did say growing up in the eighties and nineties. Oh, okay. So I, you know, I thought that's us. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's me. I did. I, <laughs> I did get older in the eighties and nineties. <laughs> it's true. It's just how time works. Yeah. But they're, they're saying that they, you know, that their gateway into the Beatles was the White Album hmm. and discover. You know, it just. I think I think the film does a really good job of tying the influence, even if we can't hear it in the songs. Or even if it doesn't register with us now because we're so used to the songs now. But this idea that the songs that they wrote while in India might have this sort of um, other worldliness to them, yeah. partly inspired by the you know uh, guitar techniques they learned at the time that they made their way into the songs mm. and the subject matter and stuff. But this idea that it's identifiably related to the country they wrote them in because that inspiration is clear in the recordings. Yeah, that was quite interesting. Yeah, it must be nice. I think sort of culturally to feel that uh, that sort of personal connection, you know, it's quite satisfying when you when you're a fan of something to for even a fan of a thing that uh, happened years and years ago before you were born um, to feel these little personal connections. You know, I saw when we went to I forget which museum in Liverpool. It's either the Beatles story or the one on Math. Matthew Street. On a Matthew Street. Uh, yeah, So, they, but there's, there's a picture in one of them of the Beatles backstage at a gig in Exeter. Uh, right. So Exeter is the city I grew up in, and that gig would have been at the the old AB cinema, which had been converted. I think it's now a Waterstones, um, and, you know, and I've bought books in that Waterstones wow. several times. You, know. you bought books where, yeah. where John Lennon once did. Exactly, wow. exactly. So, you know, in a way, I was there. What you know. books did you have bought? <laughs> Books about John Lennon. Like, <laughs> you, you know what? I almost certainly, yes. ironically, I almost certainly bought uh, the lives of John Lennon, the widely discredited the, oh, really? the lives of John Lennon by Albert Goldman in, in, in that, that Waterstones. Thinking about it now, yeah, that's probably what happened. But it, but it is nice. So like that that picture, I really like, uh, mm. and actually, I quite like to get a copy of it actually, um, because it's um, you know it's it's years before I was born. Uh, but it's it's nice just to feel that little connection, yeah, uh, with them. Yeah. And I and I, and I get that it must be lovely to be uh, an Indian and a Beatles fan, and just to have that little connection of that. You know, they wrote all these songs here, and they were, you know, and you know, and you could quite rightly say there are so many Beatles songs that wouldn't exist or would exist in a completely different form if it wasn't for their experience in India. Yes, agreed. And I think what's nice about that is is that it it opens up this idea of Indian influence to exist beyond the obvious examples of like the the sitar being used in songs and like within without you and yeah. stuff so it it just it it proves i think or it makes a very good case for the fact that that indian influence is uh, extends far beyond those handful of songs that we think about when we think about uh, when george discovered a sitar <laughs> yeah you know? yeah um, you mentioned earlier before about um, we obviously watch a lot of, well, I think the phrase used was low rent documentaries, <laughs> yeah. uh, where we would go into it thinking, well, he's hoping that there's some footage that I haven't seen before. Did yep. you find much of that in this? Yeah, I can never be quite sure with the Rishikesh footage because uh, it's sort of home movie footage. Uh, yeah, there's stuff I certainly uh, was not familiar with. Um, documentary also does a really good job of, uh, so it, 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 they've gone to the ashram um in uh, you know uh, contemporary times gone to the ashram as it is now um 
and um, it, you know, and it's sort of disused and overgrown, which it's been cleared out quite a lot, but it's still in pretty run down state of disrepair but they do do a good job of there's points where they superimpose bits of like the Beatles walking in a place in 1968 yeah superimposing how it looks now that's like quite effectively done it's really good isn't it I, I like that effect as in you've got the uh the because the, the camera's moving as well I thought it was quite yeah. interesting things so you've got the camera panning around a uh, a scene mm. there's a great one I think of George on, on like a um stone sort of walkway almost like a plinth mm. uh, I think and the camera's moving, panning around that shot, and then that image appears, and you can tell that that's where he was when that that picture was taken. Yeah. The the uh, the frames of the image is what fades away, and what you're left with is uh, George, and just a bit of the background. But as the camera moves around, the background absolutely syncs up, and it's like even the tree looks like it's in the same position. Yeah. Um. As as that camera moves around, and there's a few things like that. It's like that's a really nice, neat touch that you've done there to really mm. sort of um bridge the gap between the two uh, time periods. Yeah, and it's good looking footage as well that they've yeah. got from '68. Uh, it's obviously the bits they've used has obviously been uh, touched up and restored, and it looks great. Um, and it just re- reminded me of that bit in get back where they're all in Savile Row and is it Paul comes in one day and says oh we're yeah. watching these home movies from India yeah uh, which is really funny when you think about because they were there what just under a year ago I suppose <laughs> no that's so true isn't it and he's you like he's, uh, he's oh. like oh I just dusted off a box that was in the loft and like <laughs> yeah, actually yeah. <laughs> it's like oh you remember that holiday we took yeah. I've just been down to boots and got the, <laughs> and got the film developed yeah uh, it looks great you know and um, and then we see a bit of that footage um and and it makes me think that, uh, that maybe that's a candidate for what Peter Jackson's doing next, taking that footage and and touching that up. A bit. I, I agree with you. That would be interesting. I do think we're in danger of uh, of always saying maybe that's the thing that Peter Jackson is doing <laughs> yeah, next. Yeah, yeah. Like they should never have made that announcement that he's doing something right, next. So because... tedious podcasters <laughs> can speculate about it until they actually announce it. Yeah, <laughs> we fell for it. Yeah. What, one interesting thing about it though is. Because we also um, suggested, I think, that maybe it might be the the Maisel's Brothers footage from the first US tour that might yeah. be being untouched up. And actually, one thing I wonder is that Get Back, having done so well with a contemporary audience, uh, it, it, it does that audience probably want more of like hip, late Beatles? Mm. Uh, would they be uh, quite so keen on like early Beatles, which, you know, which is incredibly hip as far as i'm concerned but it's, it's maybe a bit more of a harder sell because of that image of just like oh they were a bit more lightweight and they were just lovable mop tops at the time you know yes i do know what you mean uh, i like the idea everyone can relax now because early beatles is hip as far as ed is concerned yep uh, <laughs> you heard it here first uh, ed's the arbiter of, of what is hip or not um uh, no, I agree. I, 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 it's, that's a thing that I think about quite often, to be honest with you, because I think it's reflective in the uh, anniversary reissues as well. You know, yeah. as, I think as much as I think, I think Beatles fans are clamouring for this technology to be able to uh, separate out the individual tracks of their early recordings, mm. so that we can get decent remixes um, and stereo remixes and those yeah. kind of things. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, does that appeal to anyone outside of hardcore Beatles fans? Whereas the re-releases of Abbey Road and um, Let It Be album, and I think there is a, they still have a contemporary feel. So I can understand why commercially they might make more sense. Mm. 
so I don't know I've, I've always kind of had it back in my mind that that I think you'd be that they would be more likely to focus much more on the later stages of the career than than anything early yeah true because actually when when they do those remixes it, it it's not just for sort of like older fans um like us i suppose um, yeah it's um it, it's also to kind of try and re-engage that younger audience absolutely yeah. and so like one of the things that's posited a lot is um apple owns the star club tapes now so maybe they're going to use that technology to separate that out and really clean up the audio and i'd love to hear that yeah uh like whether uh, like uh, people in their 20s particularly want to hear lots of 50s rock and roll covers which is what it is there's no i don't think there's a single lennon mccartney song in that set list yeah there's maybe one at the end or something but basically it is all rock and roll covers and actually do do people do the the younger audience they're trying to uh keep engaged do they want to hear it that much i'm not sure yeah no completely completely agree and also just in terms of like a a, a, as an image thing as well from I, i think you know, we've talked quite a lot about how since Get Back came out, I think Paul McCartney has enjoyed a sort of reappraisal yeah. um, and a resurgence in his career yeah. uh, since then. I think you'd probably want to keep that going, right? And Or, or at least he would um, probably want to keep going this image of, of them being vanguards of what came after rock and roll music yeah. uh, at that time, as opposed to going back to the rockabilly stuff. <laughs> think you're right the footage that's used is cleaned up really really well i was quite taken aback sometimes about how surprisingly cinematic some of that early footage um looked they've really like boldened the colors and Mm. um it looks glossy even though it was presumably filmed on a home camera it was yeah at that time in this is 68 right rishikesh and and for the fact that it's being filmed at all uh fun fact we actually have ringo to thank for that um, oh, really? Ringo and Maureen went home after I think about 10 days. Apparently, yep. And apparently the first thing they did when they got home was they parceled up a load of film to send out to them so they could so they, they could like they could all carry on filming each other. Oh, really? Oh, so cool. I think maybe they were running out of film and they didn't right. they couldn't get access to it. I did not know like that. that. That's really good. So, yeah. That's actually a really interesting fact uh, and I would have appreciated hearing that in the film instead of Hearing yet again about how Ringo took an entire suitcase full of Heinz baked beans with him, <laughs> because I think that is included in every single Beatles documentary I've seen. <laughs> I love it. It's a great fact, though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is. But it's also one of those ones that I, I always, I'm waiting for it to be debunked. You know, because it can't. I just feel like it's. This is one of those things that has just kind of um, been exaggerated over time, yeah. and surely he didn't just do that. But we've just watched a film. Um, that has Mark Lewis in on as a talking head. Like, if if that fact was not true, yeah. that would be the time to debunk it. But no, apparently he did do that. You think, well, maybe he's not got that far in his research. Maybe like, <laughs> like book, yeah. book three, the big revelation is going to be it was actually Spaghetti Hoops. <laughs> uh, we've been fed a lie this whole time. <laughs> the reason he hasn't got around to it yet is because he's looking into it now, but he's still stuck in the early stages of how Heinz were formed. Like, that's... <laughs> <laughs> that's going to take a few months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. No, okay. Uh, that's really interesting to know. Well done, Ringo. Uh, here, here we are. I'm thinking that Ringo's contribution to this whole period was actually 
sorely lacking (laughs) because he only stayed there for 10 days but actually no arguably he's made the most important contribution of all yeah by just helping us helping us see documentation of it absolutely yeah so yeah so the um the footage uh looks amazing considering it was shot presumably on someone's home camera uh using ringo's film now that i know that thank you but it's incredible considering it looks really modernized in a similar way to i think get back does considering it was shot on a home camera in when is it 1968 yeah yeah. is that 1968 so what was what was happening around that time um but why when did it go because it doesn't actually go into that an awful lot of detail so no um it's it's obviously the film explores the relationship between the Beatles and india but doesn't do that whole thing of here's what the Beatles were doing when they decided to make that trip yeah so yeah so it it does document their various uh trips to india and there are sort of and it does that in a sort of broadly um, chronological way. So the, mm. the first time they're talking about is 6th of July, 1966. It says here, I don't, I don't have that date in my head. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, and, and so the entire group uh, visit Delhi. And there's, uh, there's a nice uh, account by uh, Karim Bedi, uh, the actor who went on to play the big henchman in Octopussy. Um, <laughs> Uh, so he's a talking head and he's talking about how he wanted to meet them or he wanted to go and interview them. And he says that he sort of found out which hotel they were going to be in, went and sat in the lobby and waited for Brian Epstein. And he talks about like when he finally saw Brian Epstein, he said, um, you know, I, I, this, uh, you know, I'm here, here to do a radio interview for the government. I'm not, not completely clear whether he was making that up as an excuse yeah. to, to meet them or not. But he says Brian was like quite annoyed with him. And um, when you realise the context, this is the day after the Manila incident, when they've just oh, been wow. thrown right. out of Manila, uh, like yeah. chased out of Manila and almost killed. Right. Um, okay. Yes. That so, makes sense. so like this. So basically, that I think that was fifth of July, and then they've flown to Bangkok for refueling. Not really spent any time there. Then straight on to Delhi. So they've got a scheduled three day break in Delhi right. so like they're not they're not playing a gig there they don't have any public engagements there it is mm. literally just a holiday so which is interesting because it must be that they have decided they just they fancy it yeah you know? like yeah, yeah, yeah. like we've got three days what can we do let's uh, go to let, Delhi let, yeah. let's do that you know I, I'm interested in seeing that place so you can imagine like by that point obviously George is interested in yeah in going there you know and then sort of later on uh, so it's only a couple a uh, couple of months later after they finished touring in September to October, George and Patty go to Bombay, uh, and that's mainly so that George can study sitar with Ravi Shankar. Pat- and that, that's explored a lot in the film, obviously, right? That, yeah, and the whole relationship yeah. and how it starts, and that's interesting as well because that's also framed as a holiday. Yeah, like yeah. that is that's something, that's something that he has chosen to do because he wants to do it. So he's, he's obviously completely enamoured of the country at that point, mm. and and the music certainly because yeah. uh, I think um, he, you know he's met Ravi Shankar by this point. Through sort of Indian musicians in London, he's sort of uh, he, he's got to meet Ravi Shankar, and I think um, he, he's he's certainly done enough to convince Ravi Shankar of his passion for this instrument, mm. because there would have been lots of people who just picked up a sitar in the sixties and sort of banged out a riff, uh, <laughs> yeah. and then smoke on water, <laughs> yeah, and then <laughs> um, uh, but he is uh, he's serious about it. Now, I mean, the sitar is like Ravi Shankar says a lot uh, in in this and other other uh, films um, it, it is an instrument that takes lots and lots of practice it takes mm-hmm. a lifetime of practice and you need to be properly devoted to it you know and so you see George there's footage of him and Ravi Shankar sitting in a 
field or sort of by a cliffside, it seems like, practicing sitar together. And George is, is just doing scales. Um, yeah. Uh, and that's really interesting because, you know, George is... Uh, George was was always a guitarist who wanted to get things right. He was quite painstaking about it. Like by his own admission, he wasn't like a great improviser on the guitar. Yeah, he spent a long time working out a guitar solo to get it just right and then play it. You know, which mm. I'm sure as their career went on and they had more studio time, he was sort of he had a bit more time to do that kind of thing. Which actually is what makes some of his guitar work early on in their career sort of all the more the more remarkable mm. if you think about that guitar arrangement for till there was you yeah which is entirely theirs if you listen to the original till there was you from the music man it's none of that guitar is in there that's all them yeah you know? and uh yeah and so like ha- having figured out that solo and that arrangement is really remarkable for people their age you know yeah absolutely yeah no we talked about till there was you because it was obviously a favorite of mine yeah, um yeah. and uh yeah, I love that arrangement. I think that is it. Is it George who did the arrangement, or is it Paul who did the arrangement of the guitar? I'm not sure, but I think I, I think it was but, a bit of both. But, but George would have done the solo either way, right? I so, think so yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, no, I completely agree. I, I think one of the um, um, sorry, I'm, I'm I'm taking you off your timeline no, no. topic, but I think talking about obviously there's a lot of focus in this film on George, understandably. Yeah. I think one of the things that I found really compelling about the whole story is this impression you get that George is just really drawn like inexplicably drawn mm. to Indian music and and the um and and the, obviously the spiritualism that he eventually discovers while there um and it just kind of I don't know I it, I think um it made me feel like it adds a little bit more to this idea of the spirituality of the film when you have someone who is uh, mysteriously drawn to it in in a way that he, I don't think anybody was able to explain, yeah, this kindredship that he felt with Ravi Shankar, um, and this passion that he developed very quickly for this music, in a way that you kind of feel like you know you know without wanting to get too sort of poetic about it, you kind of can imagine that it's sort of some sort of higher power or mm. you know some you know some it's almost like fate pulling the strings or something like that. Yeah. Just because that's how it's sort of framed in, not just in the film, but just because there is no other explanation. Mm. You know, it just, it seems very strange that he was just very, very suddenly taken with this movement. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and culture. And I, and I think that sort of lends a lot of weight in this film as they then go on to dis- talk about the, um, their time with the Maharishi and, um, what that meant to them spiritually. Yeah, it's not. It, it, it's it's nice. You know, it's really nice to hear that. I think, and also, you know, so there's some someone in the film who was uh, was there at the time or knew Maharishi, I think, and and she says that Maharishi said about George, like this guy is on his last life. Yes, that's right. Yeah, um, you know, he he's and 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 that that's the reason why all this stuff. He's kind of attuned to this stuff, and it makes sense to him. So as soon as he he talks about the first time he heard in Indian music, it just felt very familiar to him, mm. you know? And it, so, yeah, I think there's this idea of like all these lives that, that they've all gone through. George is on his last one, um, which is, a, which is a lovely idea, you know, but yeah, it's, it, but it's funny. It's, uh, was it someone, was it him or someone else in the film who talks about uh, Ringo? Uh, is Ringo meditated by feeling and heart? Yes, that's right. Uh, yes. For, with the other Beatles, 
there was too much brain in the way. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> I thought, oh, <laughs> thanks? <laughs> Is that good? Or... <laughs> Uh, but it was it, it was nice to sort of get the idea of like their different approaches to meditation. Because I don't I don't know if you've ever tried meditation. You know I I have uh, not very seriously. You know and it, it's quite hard to do the thing that they describe, which is to uh, um, literally turn off your mind, relax and float downstream. This thing of um, blocking out conscious thought and just replacing it with the mantra and. Um, it, it it's difficult it takes effort and it can be quite frustrating mm. and i can imagine that john would have been the kind of guy who just got annoyed with it you know yeah, but actually yeah. he seems to have committed to it quite quite well for those six weeks or so you know i mean that that is something that i wanted to come on to and it's worth talking about now but i um i was quite surprised that the you know we've been talking about the film uh, with praise up until now but I think there are some things that I think where the movie misses a trick a little bit mm-hmm. um, or at least I was surprised by um, so one of those things is it, the film almost suggests that when the Beatles left Rishikesh under a bit of a cloud because yeah. of how their relationship with the Maharishi soured that that kind of severed their ties to any of those teachings mm. um, and a I was surprised by that because I think it does a good job of ex- of showing us later on that uh, George in particular, uh, it said that he felt guilty about how they handled the end of that friendship with mm-hmm. Maharishi and he then in later life went back and apologised and cleared the air. And it also goes on to say that Paul, or there's a, a bit of an interview with Paul where he says that he took his two kids to go and see uh, Maharishi as well. But what it doesn't do is go on to... Uh, show us or tell us that John and Paul went on to exhibit some of these teachings in their career later on. Like, I, I'm surprised there was no through line made between the spiritualism that they were exploring in Rishikesh and John's peace activism because it feels like those kind of are connected in a way and obviously are only separated by, I don't know, like, what, a year? Yeah, um, if, if that, I suppose. I mean, they get back and he's... Well, he writes Revolution over there? Or he either writes yeah, on Rishikesh sure, or around those times. I mean, it's on the um, the Isha demos anyway. Yeah. Um, and so that is probably his first proper big peace statement. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Mean, or political statement. So, yeah, he's get, so yeah, there, there does seem to be a through line between those two things. But it's interesting how it's it's not a connection that people naturally draw it's not a connection that i naturally draw because of this tendency to think of they had this period where they were hippies Mm. 1967 then they went to india and then when they got back they just they were just like guitars bass and drums again and just you know and like not that all that stuff was forgotten but it it it, it's tempting just to kind of like segment the beatles career oh definitely yeah what i mean and i think that's we tend to think of it as a sort of timeline in 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 these separate segments yeah um, and, and i think that uh, in my mind at least one of the things that throws that into confusion at, at least a little bit for me is it's like you say it's easy it's it would be easy to compartmentalize this whole thing and they went to rishikesh uh where they you know you could say they were given sort of a spiritual outlook on life and then when they came back john would start um with, with this sort of line in peace activism but before they went to rishikesh they'd done all you need is love, 
which you could argue is in the same yeah. vein. Yeah, yeah. So I guess there was always sort of a little bit of that that thinking yeah. involved. But I don't know, I, I, I just would have expected a little bit more of a continuation or, or an argument made that actually it helped inform those later stages of their career. And probably the big one for me is, as you were just talking about it then, I'm pretty sure Paul McCartney still meditates. And yeah. John did as well, right up until um, his death. Right, so it it's because it, it, I think what the there is, I forget what her name is now, but I think she uh, her byline came up as the author of the Maharishi and Me, mm-hmm. and she made the point in the film that when the band left India, when they stopped meditating, they would stop. The argument, I guess, the, that she's making is that when they stopped meditating they would no longer have harmony amongst themselves yeah. and that would directly lead to the band splitting up. Yeah. And the film almost argues that that's what happened. Bit, completely yeah. missing out what yeah. uh, any of the stuff that happened between White Album and... Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, there's a, you know, it's a sort of a, sort of a, I guess, I found it a bit of a lazy argument to make. And not that the film's making that argument, but it was presented in the film. Yeah, it's, it's framing, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah. It's, you know, we've sort of spoken before about documentaries that we'll take sort of one element of the Beatles career and then but because of that focus we'll then frame it as if as if that was the only thing that happened or as if uh you know everything was leading up to this or everything was leading up yes. to the next thing what yeah. was the what was the thing at the end of the Sergeant Pepper documentary it said within a year the Beatles would uh oh, yeah. would release the White Album yes that's that, right yeah. oh is that what <laughs> is it's, that what it's building up to like, yeah. yeah it's odd odd framing you yeah know? but I suppose it's the it's the because it's it, it's focus on one thing is its big strength. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and so I suppose that probably leads to that that sort of framing. It makes sense that, it, and and I was wondering this, and I think this is also a problem that we we often talk about with these documentaries is where do you end it? Yeah, and I think what in this documentary they can't just have them on the plane back to yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> to, to London. Yeah, um, and and that's it. So there's a little bit of a you know what happened next. And by framing it in this way, yeah, you are left with this argument being made that actually, in some way, them leaving in discord ultimately contributed to their breakup, mm. without a hint of an Alan Klein in the picture at all. Yeah, but yeah, I, I, so I can see why there's that's um, a bad thing. But in my mind, the way to end this would have been to talk about the ongoing influence beyond the Beatles. Yeah, after the Beatles split up, you know, like if anything survived um, after the they separated it's actually some of the things that they took from their experience in Rishikesh yeah uh, and continue to do in in personally yeah yeah that feels like a stronger case to make here I am doing that thing of if I would have made this film this is how I would have done it, <laughs> yeah, yeah which is always a clever stance to take <laughs> everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, as we've just been talking about um, Rishikesh and Maharishi, how do you think the film handled the story of the Maharishi and how that relationship soured? Because I, I must admit, I think, before watching this film, I was a little bit uncertain about what to believe yeah. with that whole area. So I, I think the stance it takes is sort of fairly balanced. Um, there, so there's interesting information in there, which I had heard somewhere before, but not, uh, I can't remember where, which is that part of the problem with the relationship was a, a film crew came out. Maharishi had done a deal with a film crew to come and come and film and they were all sort of, you know, in in the ashram, and the Beatles were were going. But we're here, we're here to meditate. Why are these people here? Like this, getting in the way, you know? And like, you know, this isn't what we signed up for. So I think Mark Lewison says Mark Lewison is a, is a talking head in the documentary, and and I think he says at one point that they were always very conscious of not being exploited, of kind of people making money off the back of them. They didn't like it. So, you know, mm. this thing that they've done to like go off and meditate and try and find some inner peace. And here's this guy bringing a, a camera crew along. So that, that was a kind of that was a detail that isn't talked about very often. Mm. Uh, and also the thing that um, Paul and George had just before they went to Rishikesh, I think, flown out to see Maharishi in Sweden because he'd yeah. been saying all this stuff about, um, oh, I'm going to there's going to be a TV show. I'm making a TV show with the Beatles. And they were like. Oh, well, we haven't heard of it. I yeah. love that interview footage where George is like, we've just come out here to have a little chat. <laughs> <laughs> like to, yeah. to an interviewer who has no idea of the context of what he's talking about. But it's just really right. interesting that George couldn't help himself to say that that's why they're there. Yeah, yeah. I love the euphemism, like as if they've come out here to to like give him, a, to like beat him up. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're going to go funny. around the back and just like kick the shit out of him <laughs> and, then, and then get the plane back to London, you know. Uh, it's it, it's a fun mental image, you know? <laughs> um, but uh, but there, but there's that, and there's also like the much more well known story about um, there being rumours that Maharishi was being inappropriate with some of the young women at the ashram, and so there's there's a couple of accounts of this, you know, which kind of seems to be corroborated. However, uh, when Magic Alex is introduced, they do the old dark foreboding music as yeah. soon as you see him, yeah. So you you kind of know which way. That they're bread's buttered as far as Magic Alex is, 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 <laughs> yeah. is concerned, and uh, so yes, he he is very much framed as he deliberately went there to try and uh, like wrestle John out of the Maharishi's clutches by manipulating him because he he wanted to be his new guru. Mm. So it, yes, it is taking that stance, but it is also just introducing some detail about it that isn't often. Uh, talked about which I yeah which I did find really interesting I think on the whole that was quite balanced because I think my impression of that was that the Maharishi just didn't really know you, you can imagine yeah. a world not that the film explicitly explicitly says this but you can imagine a world in which uh, he's quite naive in these things and actually he's being strong-armed into these um, business deals mm. um, where a film crew are turning up because I can imagine that there were sort of Greedy corporate types taking advantage. Yeah, I think. But but perhaps uh, I think there's an interview there where he says, you know, I don't, 
yeah, I don't really know anything about money. Obviously, I need money in order to, yeah. to keep this thing going, but I don't particularly deal with it. Um, there's another thing where at Bangor, when the Beatles have gone up to see him there, and there's a and he's being interviewed outside, and and he's and they're saying, "What do you think about the Beatles?" He says, "You know, they're, they're nice young men, very switched on. Yeah. What do you think of their music? Uh, I haven't heard their music, uh, but I'm sure it must be very good if they're as popular as they are. That kind of thing. So that." That I found quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's interesting to kind of think think of people who are just sort of um, so spiritually enlightened that, yeah. that that they don't that they've never heard pop music. Yeah. But also, it's the nineteen sixties. This guy has not been like sitting in a cave in India the whole time. Yes. Yeah. He, he is very much in the West. Yeah. He's staying in hotels in the West. He's staying in cities and giving speeches and things like that. I find it quite hard to believe that he had never heard the Beatles. It stood out to me as well for the exact yeah. same reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At, at that point, I feel like I'm. I feel like you are more savvy uh, yes. in letting on. It feels like you're 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 happily sort of um, co-opting this persona. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> not to say that it's for any malicious intent at all, but um, mm. but yeah, I, I, I thought I thought the same. Of course, I mean it's such a missed opportunity for like the the greatest reaction video of all time. Like Maharishi hears the Beatles music <laughs> for the first time, and you yes. see his facial expression. <laughs> this is really fresh. Yeah, I mean, that that would go viral on YouTube straight away. <laughs> you mentioned before about how the film frames like Magic Alex. Uh, one of my favorite things that the film does is so at some point in the film it introduces this footage of John Lennon playing guitar and he's kind of gurning to camera a bit mm. and when gurning to the camera he kind of adopts a bit of a sinister looking face deliberately yes yeah. and then the film plays that exact same footage again about 10 minutes later really zoomed in on John Lennon's eyes yeah, yeah. when they start talking about the Maharishi sex allegations <laughs> <laughs> and it's really like <laughs> well before it was jovial you can't now use the same footage <laughs> again to make it as in like John knew and that's you know um... right yeah I didn't notice that but you're right that is sort of cheating isn't it yeah because yeah I mean about that question like was Maharishi using them for publicity yeah, it, I mean, he, he certainly got very good publicity out of it. In fact, it, I was thinking about it. Like, this is the greatest sort of like brand endorsement that anyone, celebrity endorsement anyone's ever got. Because we're talking about this guy like 55 years later. Yeah. And it, most people in his position, absolutely nobody would have heard of. You know? Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because, um, yeah. cause, cause by the way, there's loads and loads of equivalent gurus. Well, obviously lo- lo- loads in India. But I mean, in terms of ones who came to the West... Yeah, uh, you know, and we'll sort of, but you, you, you can see if you're in like any UK city, you can you can find a flyer like most weekends where there's the function room of a hotel where a guru has come and he's like doing a talk and a few people will turn up. You know, mm. Maharishi w- was that guy, and other than his association with the Beatles, there's no way we would have heard of him. You know, yeah. So, so I mean, the, uh, I'm sort of less interested in the question of whether he was deliberately using them for publicity because I can see both sides of that. But actually, I just think it's fascinating like, how successful that was. You know? Yeah, I think it's fascinating as well. But I, I think there's no question about whether or not he was using the Beatles for publicity. Yeah. I think the I think the reason why there's a debate about it is, is there's no easy answer to the question, was that okay? Mm. Because actually, why shouldn't he? And also, especially when, by his own uh, reasoning... Uh, the publicity he's getting is just to 
to spread his message further, mm. which is one of peace and love. Yeah. Right. So like, it's not like I'm, I'm using the Beatles for publicity so I can get people to send me checks. I mean, but that, that was the result of it though. I mean, was it? That, okay. I mean, like, financially he did amazingly well out of it. Did he? Okay. Well, I yeah. guess that's context that's missing from the film then. Right? Well, yeah, I suppose so. You know, and I think, you know, and the guys stayed in like nice hotels and stuff. Yeah. Like there's a bit know, of that. Sure. It's, it's not, but I mean, you know, I, I don't begrudge him that at all, no. but, I, but you know, I think it is important to put it in context of like, yes, he, he spreading a, a genuine, you know, I think sincere and positive message of peace and love. Yeah. Um, but you know, but he was doing all right out of it as well. But, you know, at the end of the day, there's nothing wrong with that, really. No, not at all. No, no. I think one of, the, um, one of the other things about that whole section that I found really interesting was, um, and, and I'm always struck by uh, this differentiation between John and Paul, even back then in the early days, mm. which is that when there's a footage of them being interviewed about the whole um, Rishikesh experience, and John outright says, we made a mistake. Yes. We absolutely made a mistake. Yeah. And you can just tell that, like, there's this sort of simmering, almost resentment. Not, it's not like regret. It's like there's a sort of a, a flash of anger. I think mm. um, with, with him, as, as there often is with these kind of things. But Paul is so much more diplomatic when he mm. talks about it. He says, um, "We put him on a pedestal." Like, as in, he, you know, he's saying we thought he was someone else, but at the end of the day, he's just human. Because of course he was, but yeah. we thought he was something else. Yeah. And it just it almost frames it as in a actually it was we were partly to blame as well. And it's just yeah. really interesting the different approaches to to that question. Like Paul has always been a bit more, yeah, diplomatic in that way. I find. Yeah, it's sort of well. It's certainly always more diplomatic, but I think also he it's quite unusual for him to sort of publicly admit any vulnerability. Mm. Actually, like on behalf mm. of him or the band, because it's not something he really does. Uh, even in the lyrics to his songs, have very little vulnerability in them. Yeah, you know, it's very it's. Um, I can think of a handful from his solo career, you know. But if you think of a song like For No One, uh, which is about the breakup of a relationship, but is sung in the second person, not the first person, you know, mm. it's, it's sort of, it, so it's not him saying, my girlfriend has left me. Yeah, sure. But yeah, yeah. So, so like, he, so he is, he is showing a bit of vulnerability there. He is kind of saying, um, you know, he's saying we made a mistake, but in a slightly different way, you know. Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, he's not. But he's not. But yeah, he's not saying like it was our fault in in quite the same way. But I just and... one of the things that um, again maybe I don't know if this is territory the film necessarily should have explored. But I'm always uh, left unsure about how much this was seen as like a massive blunder. Yeah. Like how much? How much does it mean? Like knowing what happened, or you know, knowing. I guess the events that unfolded that led them to leave Rishikesh, it feels to me like it's actually, they're at risk of being quite embarrassed about the whole thing. Something mm. that was so obviously clearly in the public eye. Yeah. You know, they've gone to India. Maharishi has become this sort of public figure. The very idea that these four lads have gone to India and discovered spiritualism and are now meditating and stuff. You can understand yeah. how, how, Potentially, maybe it's again, maybe it's in more in this day and age than back then. But it would be something that newspapers would be ridiculing them for. Yeah, and then for them to come back with a degree of tail between their legs, you yeah. know, because they're saying it's a mistake now. Like, I wonder how that was perceived at the time in the press. Yeah, I think 
so it, it, again, a bit of context. This is roughly a month after Magical Mystery Tour film comes oh, out. Oh well, yeah. Um, uh, so they are already they are it's critically i think probably what's happening here is that they're sort of at that point where they've had their first big knock critically mm-hmm. and um and now when they're in the papers i think it's maybe for all the wrong reasons you know yeah, sure. so people are kind of try, finding ways to knock them down so i mean it, in 68 you've got sort of john and yoko becoming a thing for the first time and you know and so like those two are being ridiculed. They're taking advantage of that ridicule to spread a message of peace, much to their credit. And uh, what else is happening? Is it George's drug bust, maybe, in 68, I think? Uh, I could be wrong. But, right. um, but yeah, so, I mean, th- these things are happening and they're sort of... Uh, I think the papers in general are now saying, you know, you know, as Ringo says in the, in Anthology when talking about the reaction to Magical Mystery Tour, you know, they, this is their chance now to say, you know... They've gone too far. Who do they think they are? Yeah. And so I think there is a bit more of a... They're getting a bit more of a sort of critical kicking, you know. That's fair enough and interesting, I think. Uh, and also, just a quick note to say that if anyone's listening to this and is interested to hear more about the uh, significant cultural failure that is seen to be Magical Mystery Tour, you can go back and, and uh, listen to another episode that we discussed a two-parter on the whole film and its reaction. Uh, there you go. I've done my bit of selling. There's a plug a previous... for you. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> should really do that more. One of the things that I thought was quite interesting about the film was um, it, was, it seems like only recently uh, we were discussing the film Wonderwall and George Harrison's obvious contribution to that film was a uh, heavily Indian-inspired soundtrack. Mm. And I think in that episode we we mentioned that after that point um, it didn't seem as though George went on to release any more music that was so obviously inspired by Indian music. Yeah. So it felt like it was a, a phase and that phase was completed when he produced the entire soundtrack for the film Wonderwall in that style. And I, and I think we talked about that in the episode about how that you know that felt like maybe he'd run that course dry a little bit or you know he'd he'd not exhausted but at least was satisfied with his need to sort of explore into music in his own uh, output. Yeah. But one of the things that this film does is go on to show us how he continued to uh, enjoy that music and obviously his relationship with Ravi Shankar and mm. so I wonder like at what point. Did he decide to not explore that in his own music as much? Yeah, I, I wonder too. I mean, because I, I was looking at him and Ravi Shankar uh, practicing together on a on a hilltop. Yes, you know, and 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 Ravi Shankar always said that you know George was a very good student. You know, he took this thing very seriously. He wasn't just there to sort of muck about for a bit. But at the same time, we in terms of George's out musical like recorded output that has sitar on it. Post sixty eight, there's not really anything. Oh, the the inner light maybe does that come out in sixty nine? I forget. But anyway, um, the, around that time, sixty eight, sixty nine, yeah, um, there there isn't really any more sitar, mm. like him playing the sitar on a on a record. I don't think, or at least, or at the very least, there's very little. And so he has gone back to guitar and it's around that time he sort of develops that signature slide guitar sound that yeah. everyone kind of knows him for and i wonder whether that maybe that kind of made him fall back in love with the guitar a bit more i'm not sure and the interesting thing is um 
he and Ravi Shankar like remained uh, friends, you know, very good friends right up until George's death. Yeah. And you can see interviews with them both sort of later on in life uh, in this film. But the interesting thing is, presumed there was a point at which George said, "No more satire lessons. I'm not going to do this anymore." Mm. And for having, and I wonder, I wonder how Ravi felt about that. You know, I wonder whether he, there was any disappointment of um, because because I I genuinely don't think George approached this in a casual way. Mm. His, his sort of spiritual commitment was lifelong and and, and genuine and profound. But um, the, the actual playing of the sitar, I I I don't know. Maybe, maybe he did it, you know, just more in his spare time. And that's what I wondered as well, because 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 you also get this impression from the some of the other talking heads in the know that it was mutual between George and Ravi Shankar, right? And yeah. the, um, the impression you get from everyone talking about this relationship was that George was almost like a star pupil, mm. uh, the person who was willing to put in the time and dedicate himself to this instrument in the yeah. way that Ravi Shankar felt was absolutely necessary in order yeah. to do it well. So it does seem unlikely that George would get to a point where he's like, actually, no, you know what, I'm done. Yeah, you know, I've learned the scales. I'm fine. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I've, done, I've got, yeah. I've got C, I've got D, I've got most of E. That's fine, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can, I can play the riff to sunshine of your love now. Um, I, I'm fine. Yeah, <laughs> that's all I wanted to know. <laughs> but I think there's, I think there's a wider point about like the the use of the music in the film. Actually, it made me think of the fact that when we talk about documentaries. We often talk a lot about whether or not they have the rights to use the music yeah. and how that tends to be a bit of a sink or swim thing for documentaries. And I think probably this is the first one we've seen and talked about together that doesn't have the rights to use Beatles music, contains no Beatles music and doesn't suffer from it. Didn't even occur to me while I was watching it. At yeah. no point when I was watching that film did I, which, which is normally always so apparent. Right. Um, and I'd even go so far as to say, you know, a good example is the Sgt. Pepper's documentary we covered on an earlier episode, where it's obviously they're talking about specific songs. So you're very conscious of the fact that they're talking about songs that you're not currently hearing because they don't have the rights to play those songs. Mm. And I'd go so far as to say that they do the exact same thing in this documentary. They're talking about specific, they call out specific songs like Sexy Sadie. Dear Prudence. Uh, Dear Prudence, exactly. And at no yeah. point did it occur to me this would be a really good time to actually play some of this music. Yeah. And it's just not because obviously it doesn't have the rights. Like it just, I don't even, I can't even put my finger on how it gets away with that so well. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it just didn't occur to me. Very, very well handled, I think. Yeah. And I wonder if the answer lies in what we were talking about, where it, it, its focus is as much on India as it is on the Beatles. And that perhaps... Um, because you're not expecting, or maybe we're expecting, but like once the documentary has started and you realise what it's doing, uh, you're not expecting any kind of dissection of uh, the songs on the White Album or, or anything, you know, because 50 years ago today, the Sgt. Pepper documentary we were talking about mm. does do that. It is a documentary about a specific album which contains none of the songs, and that's a really difficult thing to get around. This is not about... Uh, an album so yeah I, th I think it's it, it's yeah. framing isn't it I suppose it is yeah, it's you're framed right. in a slightly different I way I think you're right I think it's it's the um, it's what going, what we talked about right at the start of this which was that it doesn't feel like a documentary about the Beatles necessarily um, it's, it's definitely much more exploring the context of them so I guess uh, the absence of that music is is so much less apparent 
yeah is in in other documentaries yeah it was nice to see so there is a lot of uh there's a lot of sort of indian inspired music in the score yeah uh, it's really nice to see that again like that sergeant pepper documentary a lot of that music was written by andre barrow uh who was george in the bootleg beatles for several years That's brilliant yeah, yeah, brilliant. Like and he's got uh, one thing he's really good at, <laughs> right? And, and he's really managed to make it work for himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Being brilliant. George. Yeah, it's just it's such a brilliant niche to exploit, yes, exactly. Isn't it? You know? And <laughs> yeah. uh, but he he's also sort of involved in in, in the the one really odd, uh, I'll call it a misstep because it kind of is. It, it's the one bit in the documentary that's quite incongruous because right at the start there is some sort of wartime footage of Liverpool. And that, and a sort of heavy Scouse accent voice uh, voiceover comes on. You don't see who it is, and it talks about growing up in Arnold Grove, and you think, oh, is this is this George? Is this supposed to be George? Is this an actor voicing George from his autobiography or something like that? Mm. And then it talks about oh, you could always hear the Indian music coming from the Harrison household because George's mother Louise really liked it, and you realise that this is so. So you think, oh. Is this a neighbour? Is is this what's happening? And then it's never really explained, and they don't really say who that is. And then that that is the only example in the whole documentary of any kind of reconstruction or someone playing yes. a character. Yeah. And then at the end, Andre Barrow is quote, quoted as uh, Arnold Grove resident or Arnold right. Grove neighbour or something. Yeah. So so that's his voice doing it. Yeah, it's odd, isn't it? It's isn't very that, odd. It's an odd thing to do to and not keep up that conceit at any other point in the film. Yeah, and and also it just so I suppose it must be that. They feel like that information is key, which which yeah. it is. It's very it's very interesting the idea that George's mother uh, listened to Indian music, which she would find on the radio when she was pregnant with George. You know, that's a, yeah. that's a nice detail, and you know, and quite possibly a significant detail as well. And so maybe all they've got is a transcript of a written interview with one of their neighbours who said this, and they have no audio or yeah. video source to use for it. So all they can do. But there must be another way to do it. The other way to do it would be to present that information to one of their talking heads and ask them to voice it on camera. To talk about it on camera. Yeah. Yeah, that would be sense. And actually, you know, arguably the best person to do that would be Mark Lewison, right? Yeah. As in, like, here is the the kind of detail that often gets missed that he is famous for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And just saying that we know from this newspaper or, or whatever the source material is, that um, this neighbour had said that they would always hear this music from Harrison House. And mm. it just, that feels like so much more in keeping with the rest of the film as opposed to this weird, like you say, reconstruction. Yeah, but he would have been like, how many sources do you have no, for this? Exactly, 100%. <laughs> like, yeah, you know. Which is why you then give it to someone else. <laughs> right, absolutely, anybody else. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, some of the talking heads uh, on the film are tenuous. There's, right. there's the guy that is on there playing a guitar um, whose only role, I think, is... Uh, his only like um, reason for being in the film is because he used to take car trips in India, yeah. And he's talking about, I guess, the sort of a, a trend for how more people started doing that once the Beatles went to India. Yeah, the way he talks about his involvement and his only reason for being in the film was that basically he's someone who took a lot of car journeys out there. It's like mm. his byline might as well have read "bum." <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I think, like I think I his, really... his byline actually does say sort of like uh, musician and like hippie historian or something. Well, it's like, like that, it's right? just like traveling. I don't know, traveling car trip man or something. No <laughs> yes. idea. Anyway, so clearly a detail that I didn't pick up on. 
Anyway, you could have got that guy to read the information out about the neighbour hearing. Because <laughs> he would have done it. Yeah, I think he would have done it. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing I was really pleased about, actually, in the documentary, because it is a point that we had made before, is the documentary does call out, and it's, it's actually around that same time, or the same subject matter, um, where they go into detail about why when we think about the psychedelic movement now uh, and drug culture in the 60s that is normally accompanied with sitar music yeah and i think that's because we've made the point on a previous episode before i think there's even footage of george explaining why that might be about how there were hippies doing drugs <laughs> and um it just right, so happens right. to be that you know they the, the the hippies who might actually be playing that music Oh, it just so happens were the type of people who would also do drugs. Yeah. And then you've got that footage of Ravi Shankar saying, um, I like my music to be able to get people high. Um, so when they're already high to begin with, yeah. it's, it's, it's nice. Yeah, so there's footage from a Dick Cavett interview with George and Ravi Shankar. Right. And Dick Cavett is sort of making that link. Oh, bizarre, bizarre music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, That's yeah. bad, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And George kind of... Yeah, uh, you can see his grimace as he sort of yeah. la- laughs that off, you know. But yeah, he probably had to put up with a bit of that, I suppose. If you're going on the chat show circuit, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, he sort of make he he's making uh, Dick Cavett is making that link between drugs and Indian music, and yeah, it really made me think about as we've said. So, in any documentary where you're going to talk about. 1967 and LSD and all that stuff uh, inevitably sitar on the soundtrack you know mm-hmm. uh, because yeah. because we just associate the two things it is it is you know the the sound of LSD the soundtrack of LSD weirdly <laughs> yeah. but uh, ironically the Beatles sort of renounced drugs in order to start transcendental meditation because mm. they were convinced of the merits of tran- transcendental meditation i mean they very much went back to drugs <laughs> after it don't yeah. get me wrong uh, but i think for the time and also uh, this this culture of uh, that goes along with the music the, of the spiritualism and it, it is the, the idea behind the music is that it gets you closer to god this set is, your mind free and yeah, yeah. this is this is the idea and even just sort of smoking smoking weed doesn't really go along with that. The idea is to be clear-headed, you know, mm, yeah. and the, and to achieve a, you know a state of enlightenment through through the music and through the uh, through the meditation. Mm. So it's interesting that that the two things even now are sort of so closely associated. I guess. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, you're right. Cleanliness in terms of cleanliness of spirit and cleanliness of mind is so important to that uh, philosophy. Yeah, but I guess. Uh, drug usage is almost like a designed to be a bit of a cheat way to achieve the same similar experience yeah 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 obviously it's directly opposite in terms of um, how you get there but I can understand why they're linked because I guess both are trying to uh, supposedly achieve the same goal yeah but yeah, you're right. It does. It does feel um, uh, unfortunate <laughs> the, the, the two are now intrinsically linked as they are. Yeah, it's it's funny how uh, you know there seems to have been this thing in the in the '60s where a, a, a lot of people uh, society had shifted so much from you know that sort of baby boomer generation who sort of had had more sort of. Uh, freedom to have creative jobs for the first time and as teenagers they had disposable income for the first time so they lived 
they were developing into very different people from their parents' generation. And a lot of them were, were looking for uh, some kind of higher truth for the first, you know, in a way that didn't necessarily involve the Church of England or, um, yeah. you know, or the, the Baptist Church in America or whatever it is, you know, Western religion. You know, they were sort of looking to the East for these things and they were looking to drugs for these things. Um, and I think a lot of people, like, I mean, John is a fantastic example of this. A lot of people just tried a lot of things and none of them quite did the trick. Yeah. You know, you can what you know if you watch Mad Men. There's a few characters in that who are a bit like that. They spend their time in the '60s, sort of looking for the answer and not not quite finding mm. it, and trying drugs and trying trying meditation. You know, <laughs> and so it's interesting that now we we just even though like so, some of these things were as you say that you know the the drugs thing was a a bit a bit of a, a sort of fast track to enlightenment, yeah. if you like without having to do the work uh, kind of thing. But yeah, so it's funny that these things are so, are now kind of like grouped together. It's just sort of a, a general uh, psychedelic era. Yeah. You know, there was drugs and there was uh, like Indian meditation and all that kind of stuff. As if it, you know, the meditation thing was just a fad and as if it hadn't been around for thousands <laughs> of years before, you know. Yeah. Like, Talking of meditation being around for thousands of years before, I think... Um, just I guess to to bring this discussion this um, episode to a close, I think overall that is the strongest thing that the film achieves is uh, as we said before not just exploring uh, what the Beatles were doing in India but actually the impact and effect that India had on the Beatles um, and I think the film ends in a really quite nice way in um, you have a, a couple of really nice talking heads talking about how much it means to them that India has a legacy in that way um, and you know not not just in the songs that were written there that appeared on the White Album but I guess how by the Beatles going to India there was a bit of a bridging between the two you know Western and Indian cultures mm. that still exists today as a result of that whole time period and there's a really nice line that I picked up on right towards the end of the film where sort of a young female songwriter uh, says that it's like a gift that India gave the world through the Beatles. Yeah. And I just thought that was a really nice way of putting it and I feel like if if the film is about anything instead of uh, just being about what the Beatles did in India, it's about that. It's about the, the relationship between the two of them and actually the long-lasting effect that that had um, that, we, that we still see the effects of now today. So yeah. I think it's very, very powerful actually in in, in that way and very effective in, in making that argument. Yeah, I agree. And I think actually one of the ways in which it sort of lends power to that argument is that um, there are far more uh, Indian contributors to this film than there are Western contributors to it. If you think about that, so there's a couple of authors, Mark Lewison, there's Steve Turner, Patty Boyd uh, is there in sort of uh, voiceover. She's recorded audio. Not loads of other Western contributors. Most of them are Indian. Like this is yeah. this is giving their perspective, um, and I think it's it's showing a really important perspective and, and like a, a, a really new and a really fascinating one. And I liked it a lot for that. And hopefully you agree if you're listening to this and you've seen the film. Um, hopefully you think the same about it as we do. But if not, or if so, please get in touch and let us know. You can reach us on all the usual, usual social media platforms at Beatles Films Pod. While you're at it, while you're online, why not quickly find us and leave us a review? We're always grateful for any 
positive, of course, reviews. Um, they really go a long way in helping us promote this podcast. So we'd appreciate that. Thank you very much. Otherwise, we will see you again for another episode next week. Thank you for listening and bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.